anxiety, it's not uncommon. She talks about, you know, one third of the population have anxiety, but that only one half seek help. And the thing that I love, I don't know, this sounds weird to say the thing that I love about anxiety, but what I want to say is that it's very treatable. And you had mentioned medication, but you've also mentioned a couple of things about how to talk through it, how to name it and, you know, things that we can teach children like that awesome trick about your daughter understanding symptoms and sensations and where it's at in the body. I love to teach grounding techniques. everybody to Resilience Conversations, the podcast. Uh, We're so excited to be here with you today. We're starting our new series. Yay. And it is on Brene Brown's book, Atlas of the Heart, which just came out in December. So our hope is that you'll grab a copy and that you'll read along with us. Note that the audiobook is coming out February 14th. So if audiobook is more your jam, I mean, that's okay too. I probably am going to grab the audiobook as well, just because I think Brene's reading it. So Katie and I are here today with our good friend, Ginger. And Ginger, can you just introduce yourself and we'll get started? I'd be happy to. Thanks for inviting me. I'm so excited to be here. And my name's Ginger Healy. I'm a clinical social worker. I'm the parent director of the Attachment and Trauma Network and lover of Brene Brown and all things good and healing. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. Well, we're going to start off with just a check-in. If you have spent any time with the resilience team, you know that we love our check-ins. And so our check-in for today is, are you mad, sad, glad, or afraid? And what's that mostly about? Hey, Katie, can you lead us off in that check-in? Sure. Man, I just had a really great group with uh, PLC that I meet with regularly. And so I think I'm just glad for that. I felt really productive, which, you know, PLCs don't always feel super productive. So it was nice to have some things checked off the list. And then I was able to just zoom in with our leadership team. And it's always fun to get positive feedback from them. So I guess I'm just all around glad I can't really find any mad, sad or afraid today. Yeah. Thanks, Katie. Yeah. Ginger, how are you doing? Mad, sad, glad, or afraid? Yeah, let me sit with that for a second because I don't have just an answer off the top of my head. But if I explore a little, I would say glad, absolutely glad to be here. Maybe a mix between a little afraid. I always get a little nervous. Hope I, you know, always say the right things. I learned in this book, though, that, you know, that anxiety and excitement can kind of blend together and you have to figure out what is what. So a little of both until I really dive deep and figure out which one, but mostly glad. So fantastic. Thank you, Ginger. Uh, Let's see. I'm checking in today as I think a little mad. I hit a deer yesterday on my way to work. And so, you know, it's all that, that fallout that you have to deal with. But then I'm also glad because 
when I was at the auto body shop for the estimate, the assistant there, she goes, Carmen, we'll take care of everything with insurance. <laughs> and so she goes, just give me the name of your adjuster and I've got it from here. Oh, so nice. there's, there's a lot of glad in that too. <laughs> and then I'm also just checking in as glad just to be here today, to be starting these conversations. You know, I got Brene's book the day it came out and I'm just excited to be able to, to start talking about it with people and sharing. When Katie and I were kind of planning out how we wanted this podcast series to go, what we decided is that we wanted to just really use kind of Brene's words to guide us. And Brene talked about in the introduction about, you know, let's talk about this book in terms of biology, biography, behaviors, and backstory. And so the idea is understand how they show up in our bodies and why the biology get curious about how our families and communities shape our beliefs about the connection between our feelings, thoughts, and behaviors, which is the biography, and then examine our go-to behaviors and recognize the context of what we're feeling or thinking, what brought this on the backstory. So I just really loved that idea of looking at all of this through biology, biography, behaviors, and backstory. And so today we're just going to focus in on the introduction and on chapter one and um, let's get started. Well, where do we want to start? I mean, come on, this, this introduction is, (laughs) (laughs) it could have been the book. Maybe not. Maybe not. Brene has a lot to say. I loved, let me see. I'm trying to, I'm digging through guys. Hold on a second. There's a section in here about being a kid. Brene is a kid. First of all, is it not fun to imagine Brene Brown as a child? <laughs> Just me. Okay. But she talks about kind of that, like knowing in early on in her childhood that she had like superpowers, right? She kind of describes it as this superpower to, to know and then realizing that she really couldn't predict the future. And I loved the idea of kind of like what you're talking about, Carmen, being able to look back and think through your childhood and what is that backstory that has led to how you react today to certain things. She's talking about the map making at one point of of where am I and how did I get here from there and how do I get there from here? And man, if I could identify that in my life, I'd be awesome, right? Right. Well, I mean, Katie, I guess, I mean, something that I think about what, what I thought about a lot, and you and I have talked about it briefly too, is just the idea of the river of cruelty right? <laughs> and all of this. You know, when we're talking about our backstories, when we're talking about our behaviors, when we're talking about biology, just how, you know, our reactions or how we're feeling and how we're feeling about whatever it might be, how we're just we're passing, we're passing it down the river and hitting other people. And how unaware we can be of that process. And once we become aware of it, man, we see it everywhere we go. And it really, it, it almost becomes, I don't know, so obvious that it's alarming, I guess, is how I would say that. How often I pass that football to other people when I don't want to feel a certain thing. And then to be able to stop and say, oh man, where did that come from? And realize how very often it had nothing to do with the actual situation, right? Yeah. Right. I would say she talks a lot about how if you're not like people will do 
anything in their power to avoid vulnerability, to avoid pain, you know, which of course leads to blaming and, oh, I'll have to find it. But she talks about anything just to avoid that pain. And I have been trying the last few years to really understand that and lean into this discomfort and learn to be uncomfortable and vulnerable. And it is. It is super hard. It leaves you very open and tender and at risk, you know, for further pain, as well as all of the good stuff, which is what we're trying to get to. But to cross that bridge is a big deal. Yeah, for sure. You know, I just read this article just just yesterday or the day before. And it was about, it was on, it was on first starts and second starts. And so the idea is that a first start happens like a tripwire. <laughs> and, and then the second dart is our reaction to whatever happened. And a lot of times, just like you were saying, a lot of times like that second dart is causing is, is the suffering that we're either it's placed on ourselves or on others. And what the article was saying is like, how can we sit in that first start so that we're not throwing another dart at somebody? And so I don't know. I just found it fascinating um, how so much of what this book is, the things that we're doing in peaceful schools and families, the conversations that are going to happen, you know, at the attachment trauma conference, you know, in a few weeks, like everything, it's just everywhere. <laughs> well, I love it. That. Oh, go ahead, Ginger. Well, I was going to say that I, once I kind of understood that, the reason that we do the things we do, you know, the rationalizing, the blaming, that it has a purpose, that it's it served our purpose for survival and to protect yeah. ourselves. Then I'm a little, I have a little more grace for that. Not that we should continue that behavior, but understanding where it came from. And for her and her, you know, this hypervigilance she talks about, it was partly survival and how I'm wired. So just starting there with the awareness of it, rather than avoiding it or denying it, understanding it, being aware of it, then being able to kind of take a step forward from that point. Yeah. And I, I was, that kind of leads us into kind of the title of the first chapter is like the places we go when things are uncertain or too much. And <laughs> I love that because then you have all of these emotions under it, right? The stress, overwhelm, anxiety, worry, avoidance, excitement, dread, and fear. And then vulnerabilities tagged onto all of that, which is interesting. Oh man, the, the, I never thought of that as being places I go when things, when things are uncertain. I don't know why. I mean, that makes total sense. But for some reason, that word in the title of this chapter kind of stuck out to me mm -hmm. as that the unease of uncertainty and ambiguity and how that's where we're all living right now, right? Is in that constant state of perpetual stress. And then the vulnerability that exists in there that's so hard to want to have, but we're all living in it right now and how beautiful things are in a sense right now, since we're all there together. I don't know. I like feeling big emotions with other people, I guess. Yeah. Well, and what about inside of that, the difference in between being stressed and being overwhelmed that, yeah. you know, the idea overwhelmed is being blown. I found that fascinating and it makes so much sense to me. Like that idea of like, I think we all know what it means to 
Like we, we all have, like, as soon as you probably read that, you're like, oh my gosh, I totally know what that is and what that looks like, sounds like, and feels like. And for me, like it gave me this greater perspective of my expectations of, of myself and for others, because at my work, we, we talk a lot about can't versus won't and how we have our buttons pushed when somebody won't do something. And we think that they're just being disrespectful, but in reality, it's very possible, especially for a child, very likely that they can't. They can't do what we are asking them. They are not unable to meet our expectations, mm-hmm. which leads to a whole bunch of things that doesn't have to be, you know, we don't have to punish or consequence if we understand that they truly are in a state of overwhelm. They don't have access to that prefrontal cortex, which would help them process what we are asking or remember how to do a step-by-step whatever. And, you know, not just with children, but for ourselves too, and for others that we have to understand there's a great, there's a heightened space right now of overwhelm in our society. So we've got to shift our expectations and be more gentle with ourselves and with others, because right now we just, we can't, we, this overwhelm is she talks about that, like, unless somebody steps in and helps you figure out what to do next, you, you can't, you can't do what is required next. We, we can't get there. We don't have access to that ability. Right. And I mean, we think, you know, we think of all of, you know, our, the kiddos, the students that were, the teachers are working with that when we're, when teacher and student are both dysregulated or blown, overwhelmed. I mean, nothing's going to come from that until we are able to pause and we might, we might both need somebody to help us co-regulate in that, in that situation, in that time. And I thought it was interesting, the story. I don't, I don't remember if she told it in the book or if it was on the podcast when she was talking about being blown, but about being at the, you know, working at a restaurant Mm. and, you know, yeah, I'm Carmen, blown. that was in the, that was in the book. And I identified with that so strongly because I waited tables for a long time and, oh man, I could just feel when she described it being in the weeds or over or blown. It was like, I was right there. And I have this theory that every human should have to wait tables for at least three months, because I think it's the only career where you have to use literally every executive function all of the time. But that was huge. And thinking about teachers right now being kind of what you guys are saying, if, if a teacher is blown, they are overwhelmed, how do we put support around them? Yes. And that's, that's the big question, right? That's what everybody wants to know. And I think the first step is we have to help people recognize when they're blown mm-hmm. and be willing to admit and say, I need out for a minute. Yeah. You know, in the example that Brene shared, it was like, sometimes people would need to go into the freezer, <laughs> the restaurant <laughs> I've been there, or, take a, or go outside, go sit in the car or, you know, take a walk. You know, I remember, I mean, I remember a situation where I was blown in the classroom and I, I went in like hid, like in a, you know, in a closet <laughs> storage STEM room, <laughs> You know, I just needed a quiet, dark place to go, to go be for a few minutes until I could have a conversation 
And sometimes, I mean, you, you know, I think of kiddos, I think of a couple of kiddos that they hid in a locker or a, you know, like the long cubbies Yeah, and how sometimes that's considered not okay. And when we think about the behavior and the biology to go back to that piece of how we're going to organize this is, you know, something I talk a lot about a lot in building neuroresilience is the brain is doing exactly what it's designed to do. And so when that kiddo elopes from your classroom and runs down the hallway, they're responding to something in their brain that says, you're not safe, get out of here. And their brain's doing what it's designed to do to keep them safe, right? And so how do we honor that, that that kid or that teacher was under so much of a mental load of stress in that moment that they literally had to get out? How do we help people recognize that sooner? First of all, honor the brain, recognize it sooner and know what to do to keep themselves safe. I love that. I think that word that you use honor is so important. I mean, she says you cannot make as good of decisions when you're in that overwhelmed state. So it's like, there's this window where something's going to happen next and we have the power to heal or the power to hurt in that state. And so I, I love that you're normalizing it. I, one of my favorite things to do whenever I speak or talk or just share, especially with children is teach them that hand brain model Mm -hmm. so that they can put words to something that is very normal, that everybody flips their lid, that everybody has a hard day, that everybody has moments where they're overwhelmed and it's okay. And it's normal. And just like you said, Katie, it's Our bodies are equipped to handle that. Our brains know what to do. So we, when we recognize that and honor that, that's what we can do to help others rather than shaming or telling someone to stop when they can't, you know, and, and when that doesn't help all of that. Yeah, absolutely. So Katie, one thing that you and I talked a little bit about was Oh gosh, where is it? Okay, guys, I'm going to put a picture up on socials of my Brene Brown book, but (laughs) (laughs) it's like filled with post-it notes, but the anxiety and excitement, was that? Oh yes. Yeah, we did. We talked about that. Oh, it's coming up in my, in my life again, Carmen. So I little known fact about me, unless you've heard me speak before is that I used to be terrified of speaking to any human, let alone speaking on stage to people. And then I became a teacher for a living, right? Totally makes sense. (laughs) Um, But even in college, I, the joke was I brought a brown paper bag to every speech during my speech 101 class or whatever you take, because I would actually throw up before I had to get up in front of my class and speak. (laughs) And We also had to film ourselves speaking in that class. And I realized as I would look back on my film and have to analyze, I didn't look nervous at all, but inside I was just anxiety ridden, right? And so I began to try to channel that differently in my body and learn how to trick myself into thinking I was excited about getting up and speaking in front of people because the feeling is so similar, and it's, it, it's really power. It was really powerful for me. And now I get up in front of large groups of people and speak for a living. 
and I'm never anxious about it anymore. I'm always just excited about the actual experience because she says it on page 12, anxiety and excitement feel the same, but how we interpret and label them can be different, can determine how we experience them differently. And again, it comes down to that awareness of what am I feeling? How do I channel it to serve me instead of steal from me? Oh, I love that. I love that because you're right. And she says the labels that those are important to know which is which they helped you know what to do next. And you obviously were able to move forward because of that. And that's just a powerful thing, you know, to be able to I, I wrote down like three times in this chapter, name it to tame it that, you know, phrased by Dr. Dan Siegel, that we got to say it out loud. We got to call it out. We got to be proud of it rather than, you know, run and hide and deny that we are how we label it. And, and the language that we use is just so powerful. Well, and the fact that we can trick things. So my daughter right now, she's going to be in um, a a musical coming up. And so it's her first experience with any of this. And she is her mother's daughter. So she's set up to live a life full of anxiety. And I could apologize, but I won't. And so she's in the stage right now where she's loving practice, but she doesn't talk to anybody. And she doesn't talk to anybody because she will stay. She is socially anxious. You know, my little 10 year old, emotionally intelligent beyond her years. And so helping her identify what, what does that feel like in yourself? When you say you're anxious, what does it feel like? And she'll describe that she has butterflies in her stomach. Well, can you think of other times you have butterflies in your stomach? And she can name those. And I'm like, can you think of good times that you have butterflies in your stomach? What if you weren't nervous or anxious about talking to that friend? What if you were excited about the possibility of making a new friend instead of anxious about the fear of rejection? Because do you have a story that shows you're going to be rejected right now? No? Okay. Well, let's move forward with excitement. And that, you know, we're telling, again, that goes back to the backstory she's telling herself. And so she's interpreting the biology and her behaviors are being influenced because of the backstory she's telling herself about the feeling she has in the moment. Oh, that is so good. (laughs) Katie, I feel like you could be like a, like, I don't know what the word is. Coaches, coaches from anxiety to excitement. (laughs) (laughs) Excitement coach. (laughs) I'm an excitement coach. I could do that. Yeah. Which is really, really entertaining to say that about me because Carmen, what is the joke on our team about me? So Katie's (laughs) maximum enthusiasm. Katie can be so excited and you would really not know at all. Like, like she's got a poker face. Yeah. And it's, I mean, her excitement just comes out in the actual work of it and it's not in her. Yeah. You can have the best idea in the world. It will be the most exciting, most brilliant thing ever. And I will say, that's a really good idea. (laughs) (laughs) And inside I am leaping for joy with you, but outside it just doesn't sound like it. (laughs) That's awesome. You know, when I read that, that when I was reading that, that section and really about the anxiety and excitement, I guess for me, I, I kind of went back to our friend Tish from the family peace initiative. She talks about finding evidence for things in your life. And so just like you were saying in that example with Sadie, like I've, you know, I struggle with anxiety. Like it can be debilitating for me. It's definitely improved tremendously over the last couple of years, 
but just really like stopping and like, let's find, let's find the evidence. Like what really is it? I don't know, like this, that quote, that really has made a huge impact on me over the last several weeks of where, what am I really anxious? (laughs) Am I really, because you know what I'm going to say nine times out of 10, I really wasn't anxious. Well, isn't it? And I really thought I was. Yeah. Isn't it amazing how those of us who do deal with anxiety on a regular basis, how much our anxiety becomes part of who we are and we struggle when we don't have it. And yeah. Carmen, I was kind of thinking about this yesterday. Little side note, Carmen had a date with a deer <laughs> in her car. But I was thinking about it yesterday when you told me that story, because I was thinking about the first time that I drove in a storm after going on anxiety medication again. So I had been off meds for a long time. And then I started taking it again. And driving in storms for me has always been really hard. And I wasn't having a panic attack as I was driving. And so because I wasn't having a panic attack while I was driving in a storm, I got nervous because I wasn't freaking out and my anxiety keeps me safe. And so if I'm not freaking out, then I'm not safe. And so I better have an anxiety attack right now. And I actually talked myself into it because I felt safer with the adrenaline and all of the stuff that comes with anxiety. I felt safer driving in a storm. And then when I got to where I was going, I was thinking how whacked that is <laughs> to, to, to need to be in a panic mode to feel like I can handle something. And um, that's when I knew meds were a really good choice for me because um, <laughs> that's not normal. Yeah. But you do bring up a really good point that anxiety it's not uncommon. She talks about, you know, one third of the population have anxiety, but that only one half seek help. And the thing that I love, I don't know, this sounds weird to say the thing that I love about anxiety, but what I want to say is that it's very treatable. And you had mentioned medication, but you've also mentioned a couple of things about how to talk through it, how to name it and, you know, things that we can teach children like Mm -hmm. that awesome trick about your daughter, understanding symptoms and sensations and where it's at in the body. I love to teach grounding techniques and breathing techniques. There really is so much we can do. And I do think we're talking about it more and more so that it is becoming more normalized because it shouldn't be shameful. It is a survival technique. And I like how she talks about and breaks it down into all the different feelings that anxiety can lead to worry and avoidance and avoidance is not benign, you know, like it has this domino Mm -hmm. effect. So I wrote down, like, find what is behind the worry, you know, Mm -hmm. stop the stressor that is causing the stress. I like to think of that iceberg analogy that you see what's on top, but really there's a lot going on underneath Mm -hmm. and that what we need to be looking at, especially when we work with kids, getting to the underneath of the behavior. What's the behavior really trying to tell us rather than dealing with the things on top that are just coping mechanisms? Well, and Ginger, what you're saying now makes me think about, you know, again, something that I work through with my own child is how does it serve you and how does it steal from you, right? You need to control your anxiety, not your anxiety control you. And so in the example of me driving through the storm, I needed a level of heightened awareness that I wasn't feeling. And so that anxiety was actually good. It was serving me. A healthy Mm -hmm. dose of anxiety was serving me 
to keep me alert, keep me paying attention, right? And be able to drive through. And so one of the ways I talk to young kids about it, and this might be coming dated, I don't know, (laughs) probably is, using your whatever it is, whatever your fear, your worry, your doubt, whatever that emotional superpower is, keeping it in check like Elsa from Frozen. So Elsa has this amazing superpower to make snowmen and make these fun environments for her and her sister to play. And yet when she becomes overwhelmed, she can freeze out an entire city or an entire whatever, Arendella's country, whatever. And so <laughs> it's, it's fake. When it's serving her, it's fun and it keeps things safe and healthy. But then there are times that it can be overwhelming and it overpowers and then she overreacts. And so how do you, it, helping kids and adults understand that all of these emotions are good, Right. That they're all they all serve a part. We have them for a reason, but we have to be able to know when we just need to build Olaf (laughs) and when we're going to freeze out the entire world. And that's really powerful for people to start to understand as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I like that. She talks about befriending your emotions, Mm -hmm. you know, and because we, we don't heal in isolation, so we need to have connection, but she says connection and fear are the opposite. So we don't want to live in that fear, but understanding it, exploring it and befriending it can lead to that higher level emotional yeah. state. Well, ladies, we could, we could spend <laughs> all day just talking about the introduction in chapter one, <laughs> but we're going to, we're going to stop right there. And so as we're closing out the podcast today, I think the question that I have is just, what are you taking with you? Who would like to go first? I think I'm taking with me just a reminder of how valuable every experience we have is and that they're all worth exploring. Ooh, that's so good. Yeah, mine kind of goes along with that. I had kind of written down and I I reread it like three times today just to kind of sit with it even more. But it was everything can be a source of shame if it's not normalized. Mm -hmm. So we're here just to talk about it and to create that safe space for all emotion. Beautiful. I think for me, what I'm taking with me is just, I think the conversation that, I mean, sometimes I, sometimes I feel like I don't have a lot of people to talk with about these kind of things and uh, talk about with these emotions. And so I'm, I'm taking with me that over these next several weeks, we're going to get to, to sort of really dig in and have conversation. And that's, that's just so, it just feels very restorative. And I know that's like my word, but like, I'm just going to say it, it just seems very restorative to me. Ginger, we just want to thank you so much for being here with us today. And Ginger, how can people find you? And we've got a conference coming up. Yes, we do. You can find me at ginger at attachedtrauma.org. You can go to attachedtrauma.org to find the Attachment and Trauma Network. Our fifth annual Creating Trauma Sensitive Schools Conference is coming up February 20th through the 22nd in person in Houston. And if you're not able to attend in person, we have a virtual portion February 24th and 25th. And Carmen, you're going to be speaking with us. We cannot wait to hear your message. We have some 
extraordinary speakers and we are pushing this trauma movement forward to heal anyone impacted by trauma. And we love teachers and educators because they hold the future in the palm of their hand. And so we welcome them to this conference. Well, and we have a lot of our Kansas friends are going to be there in person. Uh, I think James Moffitt and Dustin Dustin Springer are going to be there. Carrie Ackerson. She's uh, not a Kansan, but she might as well be. Yes. Yes. So um, that's exciting. Well, Katie, Ginger, thank you so much for this conversation today. And sorry, I'm sure you can hear my dogs right now. The dogs are letting (laughs) Um, us know it's time to be quiet. (laughs) I hope everybody has a great, a great week. And you know what? Let us know what's making you mad, sad, glad, or afraid around this book. We'd love for you to hashtag us at Resilience Conversations and Join us next week as we're going to be digging into chapters two and three. And Megan Yoder, our um, resilience team member who does the trauma-informed yoga and uh, mindfulness, she's going to be with us to check in and talk about those chapters. So have a great day, everyone. And Katie, what's our sign-off? As always, we love you and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. We see you, hear you, we're with you. We'll see you next time. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye.